The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are in the book of Matthew, and we have been preaching through the book of Matthew, um, basically chapter by chapter. And um, we are now in Matthew 26, the last half of Matthew 26. Last week, Jay preached for us from the beginning of Matthew 26, which is a deep encouragement to many of us, most of us, all of us, maybe. But um, we are uh, going to be looking here at the end of Matthew 26. We're going to be picking up in verse 36. So what we're going to do is um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to start looking at this together. All right? Father, as we look at your word, um, I pray that you would draw our eyes to Jesus We've got a lot of things going on in our lives and many hurts and pains and stresses. And so we pray that you give us your spirit right now that we would see Jesus as he is beginning to walk towards his cross where he died for our many sins, that he would save us and make us your children. And because you smile upon us, we pray this with confidence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I, um, I remember visiting my grandfather growing up because he was a very kind of eclectic guy. Um, we, he, was, he was Norwegian, so we called him Bestapar. He was my grandfather, but Norwegian for Bestapar, or Norwegian for grandfather is Bestapar. He was a pilot in World War II, and he later became a doctor. He'd ride a motorcycle to do house visits. Um, he built uh, planes, like uh, wire planes that you would fly in the park in his basement. And um, he had all this like crazy like World War II uh, memorabilia stuff. He looked kind of like a, just an elongated troll doll, and so he had a lot a lot of troll dolls in his house. Um, and he was just a just a very interesting guy. But I remember when he uh, passed away, going down into his basement to try to figure out what are the things that I'm going to take with me to remember my grandfather. What are the things that I want? They're going to remind me of who he is. And I, I got a little cigar box, and I put, like, little random mechanic tools and um, maybe a few little, like, pins from World War II that he had laying around. And in that, also, I had a little uh, – he had – somehow he had, during World War II, I imagine, picked up a little vial of dirt from the Mount of Gethsemane. I put that in the box. I put that in my house somewhere now. And it's a reminder – actually, it's in a little olive wood box that he must have gotten when he got the vial of – wood from uh, or from the mountain Gethsemane. But there's this memento of who he was and kind of the things I loved about him and the things that remind me of who he is, right? That's what a memento is. It's, it reminds us of the meaning of people or things. And as we are kind of beginning this uh, tilting, looking at the cross, Matthew 26 is kind of written as a series of mementos that Matthew is giving us as we begin to walk with Jesus towards his cross. Because the purpose of the book of uh, Matthew, a lot of it is about discipleship. How do, we be, how do we become and be faithful disciples of Jesus? As we take our turn here in Matthew 26, our eyes are distinctly on looking at the cross of Christ. What does this mean? And what is the cross about? And Matthew is really trying to help us understand that the that the cross of Christ is all about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so as we're going to work through this passage, there's not as much necessarily direct application for like 
Um, here's how to do your finances, or here's how to do relationships, or here's how to pray, or anything like that. It's more about seeing who Jesus is and what he means for us as, we, as he walks towards his cross. Because what Jesus is doing as he walks towards his cross, I don't know if you guys have a red letter Bible, but Jesus' words kind of taper off almost entirely as you get into Matthew 26 and 27. It's all about what he is accomplishing in his death and resurrection on our behalf. And so as we look at the cross, as we kind of walk through with Jesus through these four very famous scenes, uh, what we're, the main point we're looking at is that Jesus alone can break the power of our sin. Jesus alone can break the power of our sin. Right? Nothing that we can do, we can't add to it, we can't uh, subtract from it, uh, we can't help him out, we can't lend a helping hand to Jesus in any way. And Jesus, as we walk through this passage, and he is progressively alone, the point of what we're looking at here is that Jesus alone can break the power of our sin. Which means that this morning as we gather together to worship him, we don't have to have had a great week or a great day to get on this power to break the power of our sin. Jesus alone accomplishes this. That's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be seeing four mementos as we walk through this passage. We're going to see uh, a cup. We're going to see a kiss. We're going to see a lie. And we're going to see a friend. Those are the four mementos that help us draw into this great reality that Jesus alone can break the power of our sin. And so we're going to pick up in verse 36. We're going to see this first memento, the cup. Excuse me. Then Jesus went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which were James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said that my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, and their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand. Right, this is a famous scene in the life of Jesus. This is often, uh, if you ever see religious art, this is that moment where Jesus is praying and, and the other gospels, it talks about him weeping blood. It's actually a medical condition where you have under so much stress that your, that your blood uh, begins to kind of go into your perspiration. You, you, you actually are bleeding real blood. It's not just kind of like some sort of like magic trick where Jesus is under so much distress because he is facing down this one moment that he has been talking about all of his ministry. He's been looking forward to this moment and talking about it. And now he is on the brink of it. And Jesus is in anguish, right? uh, Verse 37, it says, and taking with him Peter and the sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. 
right? The, the words there are loathing with deep anguish, loathing with such an anguish that he cannot, like just ripping apart on the inside. He cannot bear what he is about to engage, right? He is walking into his passion. And it's a rare thing in the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew does not actually give us very many insights into uh, the emotional life of Jesus, Right? Uh, some of us are incredibly emotional people, and it's easy to see what our emotions are. Some people are not. Uh, Matthew doesn't give us a lot of insight into how Jesus was emotionally responding to things. So this is a critical moment in the life of Jesus. that it, He is saying, there's something specific going on here. There's something that Jesus is seeing, something that Jesus is looking at, that causes him an emotional response, almost like nothing like anything else that he's seen or engaged in the rest of this story. So why is Jesus feeling so troubled? Right? Is you have to ask the question here, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he he commended right dying for God and suffering for God's sake. Is Jesus here at the end of his life becoming a coward? You have to ask the question. I mean here he's he's facing down death is basically. He said, I'm going to die. And he's also said I'm going to rise again. So what is Jesus afraid of? Is it death? Right? We all, we, there's stories all through history of people facing down death without any, any concern. Right? The famous philosopher Socrates, uh, when he got his death sentence from the, the courts, uh, famously got given a cup filled with poison, and his followers were all kind of like freaking out, like, oh my gosh, and he was like, nah, chill out, guys. Like, right? He just faced down death like nobody's, nobody's problem, right? Or... You have all these martyrs through church history who, who've reported over and over and over again, right? They're walking to the this, this stake where they're going to be burned or they're walking towards the execution platform where they're going to be beheaded. And they almost have this glow about them. Like they're joyful that they're giving up their life for the Lord. So why is Jesus here when he is at the, the brink of death, facing it down, and he is sweating blood and he is at ripping apart on the inside? Is Jesus becoming a coward here at the end? Let's look back at what Jesus says here when he prays. This is the key to unlocking that question. Verse 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. See, when Jesus says that, he's not, he's not saying like some sort of like metaphorical, like, oh, this is going to be really hard. He's actually pulling from key Old Testament imagery when he says this cup, right? It's captured in a couple places. Jeremiah 25, 15. The Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Or Isaiah, Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl of the cup of staggering, right? This image, there's other places, the Psalms, that's actually mentioned in the book of Revelation. This cup that God is referring to here in the Old Testament that Jesus is picking up on here at this moment in Matthew 26 is this cup of the condensed, pure wrath of God for the atrocious sins of all of mankind, right? This is the anger of God focused in a moment for all that is wrong with this world. 
right? This is the wrath of God for all the brokenness, not just, not just the brokenness of the world, right? <laughs> Where, right? There's potholes in the street, right? That's not, that's not just the stuff that God's angry about, right? God wants paved streets too. God is angry with our hearts that would say to God, no, you don't know how to do this. I've got a better plan. I can do this God thing better, right? God is angry with all the abuse and rage and violence, all the, all, the, all the ways in which we victimize other people, all the ways in which you have been victimized. God is filled with rage with all the ways in which we have lied to each other, lied to him, lied to ourselves. God is angry with all the ways in which we have violated and broken this world and almost like you, you squeeze an orange to get the juice out of it. We have squeezed the world to get our joys out of it on our own terms. God is angry and filled with rage because he's good and right and holy, right? This isn't kind of like God being a little like finicky. God designed the world to give us himself and to give us unending joys. And we have broken it and perverted it and used it. That is what's wrong with the world, right? It's not which political party is in power. It's not, am I getting paid enough? The problem with the world is that sin has wrecked this whole thing and God is angry about it. And so here Jesus is in the garden and he's about to receive a cup and it is not the physical pain of the cross that he's afraid of that he pulls back from. It is looking into the mirror of God's undiluted, unrestrained wrath that he will take on at the cross because he loves us, right? That is, that is the cup that Jesus is looking at, right? When Jesus looks at the cross, it is looking into the undiluted wrath of God. And you know what he does? He responds and says, God, if there's any other way to save your people, if there's any other way to break the power of sin, if there's any other way, then let's do that. And the answer? No. This is the way. This is the only way to break the power of sin. This is the only way to break the destruction of sin. This is the only way to release your hearts and my hearts, our minds, our bodies from the, the wreck of sin is for Jesus to take this cup and he drinks all of it and he dies by the love of drinking this cup for us. That's the gospel. If you ever wonder what the gospel is, the gospel is that Jesus takes what we deserve in our place so that we get what he deserves in his place. That, that's the gospel. That's what Jesus is accomplishing here. He is calling us to see this cup is at the core of our faith. We cannot lose, we cannot lose the centrality of this cup that Jesus takes, which is why when we take the Lord's Supper together, we're taking a cup of blessing because Jesus has drained all the anger of God out of that cup so that we receive the hand and fellowship of God to bless us. Right? We need to keep this memento of the cup in view because Jesus is walking towards this cross. And it's not just that he, poor Jesus, dies. He goes and faces the one thing that none of us could ever do. Right? You do not want to face the un- restrained wrath of God. Jesus took that in our place. So let's keep this memento dear to our hearts 
that he took this cup for us. The second memento that we're going to see here is that Jesus is now betrayed. And we see get, we get this memento of a kiss. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs, and the chief priests and the elders and the, of the people. Right? Basically a mob. Now the betrayer had given him a sign saying, <coughs> the one whom I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once, said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant. Right, Just to fill in a little bit of a detail there. Um, that, his, that guy's name is Malchus. He was a servant. And the reason he probably gets named and mentioned is because he later becomes a disciple of Jesus. Right? Isn't this crazy? Jesus being betrayed. Guy gets his ears, ear cut off. Jesus heals him, actually. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you, not, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angel, angels? And how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this must take, must take place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all his disciples left him and fled. So this is this famous moment, right, when, when Judas betrays Jesus. And he doesn't just do it by kind of giving him the memo of where Jesus is meeting and walk off. This is an intimate betrayal. Right? I think you notice there where it says uh, it, it, the text draws us to see how intimate of a betrayal this was. Right? Verse 47, and while he was still speaking, G Judas, one of the twelve, right? Jesus' posse, his inner circle, this guy, he, he was a part of the inner friendship. Right? They all went out and had lunch and meals together all the time. And then this kiss, right? the kiss of betrayal. Right? Jesus, he knows that this is about to happen. And I, I, remember, I remember the last time, for example, I kissed my grandfather's cheek. You guys, I'm sure you have similar, similar memories. Because like, a kiss on the cheek is, is an intimate, right? You're, you're right up next to each other. And can you imagine somebody who you know has betrayed you and wronged you Somebody who's done the worst things against you. Can you imagine getting that close? Giving them a kiss? Right? Th this text draws us not just to... It draws us into the, the drama of what Jesus is, is experiencing. Because, first of all, I'm just amazed at Jesus' self-control. Because I wouldn't want to have punched him in the throat, right? <laughs> a kiss, right? This is the man who has flicked the switch for him to go to the cross. And it's always a question, why did Judas betray Jesus? Why did he do this? It's not exactly clear. There's not like a lot that we get of like, this is Judas' manifesto of why he betrayed Jesus, right? But there's a few kind of factors. First of all, um, basically after the fact, when, Jesus, when Judas has died, uh, the disciples kind of do an audit and they realize like, oh, this guy was like a money grabber, right? Judas was all about the money and he loved the power of money, right? He 
Um, he had been using the money of the purse of Jesus' ministry uh, for his own ends, right? Uh, so there, there's that factor that he, he loved money. Um, <clears throat> the second thing, I think we kind of gather this because of the way that Judas has betrayed or portrayed is that he loved power, right? Judas loved being around. Jesus was a hot ticket, right? (laughs) Jesus was all like, everybody knew who Jesus was, right? All the religious people, they were afraid of Jesus because he had uh, this great teaching power, right? Like you don't just like go like mouthing off against Elon Musk because Elon Musk has got all this like buying power, right? That's kind of like with Jesus, right? People who kind of saddle up next to him and Judas was one of them. He, he, he loved the power. There's also the speculation um, that Judas uh, had wanted to basically begin a revolution. Right? Judas was a part of a religious party that wanted to overthrow the Roman, Roman powers, and Jesus uh, clearly had the ability to do that, and so by betraying him to the religious leaders, that would start a riot and then a revolution. I'm not sure about that, but it seems possible, but I think... One thing to notice here is, do you notice that in verse 49? And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. Right? All the other disciples by this point are honoring Jesus by saying Master or Lord. But Judas is still going with Rabbi. So at the end of the day, what's going on in Judas' heart is he does not actually believe who Jesus says he is. And probably, he's realizing there's this kind of conflict going on between Jesus and the religious people of the time. And he, he wants to keep his power and his money. And so Jesus has got to get out of the way. Because Jesus won't have any of the religious system. He won't have any of that sticking up. He won't have any of that standing by. And so Judas is kind of like counting up. It's like, okay, well, I want to keep my money and I want to keep my religious power. So let's just get Jesus out of the way. I, I, it's speculation, so just take it for what it's worth. But I think that what's going on here and the way Judas betrays Jesus is it draws us into this great reality. Sin is messy, and it's intimately messy. It's not like a surgical cut. It's not like clean and, dis- and distilled. Like You can kind of sin over here, and it's like separated and like vacuum sealed. <laughs> sin and the ways in which it wrecks our lives is intimate, like a betrayal on the kiss. Right? There, there's no way in which you can be hiding sin and it doesn't have effects on other people and other things in other areas. Right? That, that's one of, the, one of the, the things whenever like a big you know, neon light sin comes out in our lives and we, we confess it, we kind of want to manage it. Like, oh, I can just kind of like... The reality is when that's exposed, it's seen that this, is, this has had an effect in all other areas. Right? This betrayal is intimate. Sin is messy. And Jesus continues to step into it. Do you notice that Jesus does not flinch from the messiness of this betrayal? Jesus does not flinch or pull back from the mess of sin in our lives, of your life, whatever's going on. Jesus is not offended or he is not um, pulling back. He, he is leaning in and taking on the mess of the sin in our lives. right? So that... Jesus is the one who then returns and gives us the kiss of grace. We give him the kiss of betrayal, and Jesus is the one who gives us the kiss of grace. But he, he does this in a way. Do you, we're kind of saying this over, the, over all of this, right? Jesus 
um, is the only one who has the power to break our sins, right? And we see the disciples, what do they do? They see Jesus getting betrayed, and they're like, all right, take up arms. Here we go, Jesus, we're going to defend you. Cuts off a guy's ear, heals it up, put the sword away. Actually, and Jesus kind of pulls it. He's like, look, I could call 10, you know, 10 million angels right down now, and we could t- settle this whole problem. Jesus is drawing our attention to the fact that he will be the only one by his own power, even amidst their weakness, that will save us. Right? This is often a struggle for the church. We often feel like if we only had a little bit more cultural clout, a little bit more political power, somehow we'd be able to show people how much better Jesus is. And Jesus often loves to use the church in weakness, like he was in weakness, to show that he is the only one. He's the only one who gets the power and the glory for saving people. Right? So if you feel weak, if this week feels like, at the end of this week, you're kind of like, I'm the biggest dirtbag I know, and I can't get my life together, and I don't know how to fix anything in my life. You know what? Those are the exact places and people that Jesus loves to give his grace to. Loves to come near and help. Right? He is the one who leans in, and he is the only one who will be shown to be your savior and friend. And just another, just a, a little comment about this kiss thing. You know, it's interesting, in the New Testament, um, we, always, we often talk about, like, what is it like to be the church, and what does it mean to be the church, and how do we be people's, Jesus' people together? Talk about loving people and caring for each other and bearing each other's burdens, providing for each other's needs. That's all true. You know one command that we don't ever talk about? It's mentioned five times. Give each other a holy kiss. <laughs> Right. All of New Englanders are reeling back. Oh my gosh! Don't don't mention such a thing. I'm people in Hispanic cultures. They they love. They're like, yeah, yeah, we got that one down, guys. All you pasty white New Englanders, like, what do you know? You know. <laughs> I think the purpose of that command. I wonder if the purpose of that command is, we are people of a king who is betrayed by a kiss, and now we are warmly welcomed into the fellowship and love of God's family. That's a big deal. We should be affectionate towards each other. The people that you look next to in, the, in this room, yes, we have all betrayed Jesus in our hearts. But these are all the very people that Jesus died to give his grace to, right? These are the people that Jesus died for. So I'm not saying that you have to go give each other a kiss after church. But I am saying that as people who are bought by a king who is betrayed with a kiss, we should be people that are affectionate towards each other because we have a good king. All right, so we're going to pick up third memento, verse 57. The third memento that helps us lean towards and look towards what the cross means for him. Verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests in the old council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man, I said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? Right, this is a this is like saying, like, I'm gonna do a terrorist plot on the White House. Like this is like a big deal. Like, it's not just kind of like like a church, like a regular church building. Just to kind of put it in perspective. Have you no answer to make? What is it that this, these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, 
I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, <coughs> excuse me, you have now heard, I'm sorry, then he said, you have uttered, he has uttered blasphemy, what further witness do we need? Have you now heard his, his blasphemy? What is your judgment? Right, this is a whole council. They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and they slapped him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? See, we're going to see this memento of a lie, because here is this moment, this false trial, this um, kangaroo court of Jesus being the mechanics of government turning Jesus towards the cross, right? This is, they're all seeking fake evidence, right? We saw that, right? They're all, like, it just says a point blank, right? We're trying to find false witnesses that, and isn't it funny that Jesus was such an honest and out front person that even false witnesses couldn't get their stories straight about him and agree, right? They're like, what do you mean? Jesus clearly did this and said this that clearly contradicts what you just said. But then they get this moment, right? We were commenting on this when we were reading it, that He's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And then he gets asked, are you the son of God? You've said so, and you're going to see me coming in the hand of glory. Right? Just a couple things here. Before we get like all down on the Pharisees, we have to be a little bit sympathetic to the position that they were put into. Right? First of all, anybody who says, even today, that they're going to destroy the White House, for example, and rebuild it in three days... That person's crazy, right? There ain't no way you're doing that, right? <laughs> I don't care what sort of like Google technology you're using. Like there ain't no way to build a building that you've destroyed in three days, right? So first of all, that's crazy. Secondly, they have just said to a man, are you the son of God? And what does he respond? He doesn't say, um, well, you know, I'm kind of somewhere in between. <laughs> right? He doesn't say kind of like, well, I'm like an angel, but a little bit better, you know, <laughs> right? He says, you're going to see me at the right hand of power. You know what that means? That Jesus is sitting in the very seat of God, right? If you have a, if you have a table and you have all the cards, who's supposed to sit where? The God table. Jesus sits right in that table, that chair. So imagine the position that they're put in. That's crazy, right? Like if any of you said that to me, I'd be like, okay, thank you. I'm going to go upstairs to Manchester Mental Health and we're going to set up an appointment, right? They are put in this position, where Jesus has said, I am the power, the very Son of God. I am God the Son in the person, in the incarnate right now. And you have to reckon with that. Right? This reminds us of this famous phrase, famous quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis not only wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, but he wrote some really good books as well. C.S. Lewis, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. He's talking about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing that we must not say. A man who has merely, was merely a man and said the sort of thing that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a man or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense that he is being a great human teacher. 
He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Right, Jesus, as he is walking towards the cross, is calling us to reckon with this great reality, this, this punch to the gut. He is either God and going to die the death of sin under the wrath of God as the Son of God, or he is an absolute lunatic who deserves to die. There is no other, right, there's no other place to put him. There's no other box to put him in. There's no other cup to put him in. This is either the Lord of life who is walking towards death, the God of truth who will go to death by a lie, or he deserves to be there, right? He is either a liar, a lord, or a lunatic. We will either submit to him, you will either submit to him, and admit that you are false, or you will deny him and say that he's a lie. Right? But this this Lord, he calls us into his way towards the cross because he willingly, he could have stopped us at any moment. And yet he, out of love for us and desire for the glory of God, walked towards the cross even through a lie that he would save us from the lies of our own hearts and our sins. Right? The, the many lies that we experience that we believe during the day. All the things that would tear us down. We must face daily. We must face daily this reality. Will we rely on the strength of Jesus and his power to destroy our sin? Or we will attempt to manage our lives in our own terms. Right? Here is the Son of God in weakness. Paul in First First Corinthians calls it the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of man. Right? This is Jesus walking towards the cross. And the truth of Christ is more sufficient and more powerful than the lies of our hearts. So for you this week, this week as you face the persistent lies of your own heart, that you can manage your life on your own, or wherever else they are, will you lean into and remember this memento? He is the Lord. And he, even in his weakness, is sufficient for my need. He is the one, even in his weakness and his death, gives me power in life. We rely on him or you manage on your own. We're going to pick up this last memento as we walk towards the cross, verse 69, it's going to, we've talked about a cup where Jesus takes the cup of God's wrath for our sins. Uh, we've talked about a kiss where Jesus is betrayed by a friend to die for our sins. A lie where Jesus has gone to his death to, to die for our sins. And here, a friend. Again, these are all these like famous moments in the life of Jesus. Here we have verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, <coughs> You also were with Jesus the Galilean. And he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And he went out to the entrance. Another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know that man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. <laughs> they even picked up on accents and categorized people by them back then. 
And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, <coughs> before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So here's a sad picture of, G of Peter that we all, in many ways, if you've read the life of Jesus, you're familiar with this. Peter, the loudmouth disciple who's always the one to first to rush in, right? He's always the one to start talking about, you know, why don't we rain down fire on all those bad people and all these other things that he's... Peter's the one who said, I'll never betray you or leave you. And here he is, exposed for who he really is, right? A man who has no power and weak and helpless, right? In many ways, he represents all of us, right? I will never do this sin again. I will never do this on my own again. I, and we all do, right? We're all weak. Peter represents many of us. And he betrays Jesus as a fickle friend. But remember who he is. Who is he betraying? Jesus, the true friend. Right? Jesus, the true friend, who though all of his friends are fickle, Jesus is the one, the true friend, who dies for his enemies, dies for the people who have just betrayed him, dies for his, the people who have just kissed him on the cheek and left him. He dies for people that are broken dirtbags like us because he is the true friend. Right? We, we actually we read this earlier in our scripture reading. This is the Jesus, this is the friendship of Jesus. Hebrews 4 since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We all, we all have problems in our lives, and we all, like, how do I overcome this area? We want to go to people who have been through that and know that problem and know that need and have found help and found victory over that area, right? That, that's how we all think about growing, right? We don't go to people, right, um, right? You don't go to a bank robber to figure out how to run a bank, right? <laughs> you go to people who have their lives together or have an area where they're, they're doing well and you try to grow and learn from them. Jesus is not so distant from us that he doesn't know what it's like to have the struggles that we face, right? He doesn't know what it's like. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be... Um, in compromising situations. He knows what it's like to have all this crazy stuff that you and I face every day of this week. And yet, he has done it without sin. And he is a sympathizing friend who walks beside us. And even to Peter, who he knew was going to betray him, he says, I'll meet you back up when I'm raised from the dead. Right? This friendship of Jesus is so strong and powerful that it will lead him straight through the cross so that he is not defined by the power of sin and death, but comes victor victoriously over it so that he can be our true and life-giving friend forever. Right? For all the problems that we are facing this week, Jesus is the true friend, and he is the only one who has the power to break the power of sin in our lives. Right, this is the Jesus that we are that we are called to see to walk beside us. He goes to the cross because the cross is not just some sort of like historical accident that happens to Jesus. It is about your life today, your life tomorrow, your life this week, where we will face lies and sin and weakness. We will continue to face those things, right? Even in our best moments. And Jesus says, "I can break the power of sin in your life because I want to walk next to you, even though you have." disowned me and betrayed me in your hearts. 
He is the strong and perfect and good. He is the only one who will be faithful to you, faithful to me, faithful to fickle and weak people like us. Right? Jesus is the one that we need this week. Right? You don't need Pastor Jacob. You need your good friend and Savior who died to break the power of sin in your life. You need Jesus this week. This is the Savior that we come to worship and meet with this morning. So let's pray. Father, as we look at this cross of Christ, as we get close to it, we pray that you would focus our eyes, that we would see these things, hold these mementos, that he took the wrath that we deserve, that we could be friends of God. So we pray that you continue to be with us as we worship you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.